This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Coming up on today's show, Alberta municipalities have some concerns with the way things are going. Vaccine equity. Until we get the world vaccinated, we are going to continue to see variants. Meanwhile, we find out that hundreds of people have tried to enter Canada with fake COVID-19 test results. Interesting development in the past few days around um, ambulances, which seems to be a story in this province and has been for some time, going back many, many years. Um, at this point, it looks like it may be as bad as it's ever been, especially when you take a look at the way smaller communities are being relied upon to service their neighbors or the bigger centers. And, and essentially, we're ending up in areas where we're seeing red alerts, which means there is no ambulance service available at that time. Um, and now there's a, a couple of groups that are coming together to try and push the province to come up with some way to deal with this problem. Joining us to talk about it is Kathy Heron, who is mayor of St. Albert and also president of the Alberta Municipalities, which used to be Alberta Urban Municipalities Association. <laughs> Kathy, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. No, I'm glad to be here, Shane. Glad for the attention to the issue. Yeah, it's been going on for so long, Kathy. Now, what's happened most recently is Alberta Municipalities, your group, um, put forward two resolutions which were approved overwhelmingly to deal with the situation. Let's start with them one at a time. First, you want to see a review of the dispatch system, right? That's something a lot of people talk about as being part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, we had our convention um, a couple weeks ago. And uh, we actually had three motions. One was the dispatch, um, another on just delivery, and then a little bit about mental health of, the, of those serving um, on ambulances. But the dispatch has been um, an ongoing issue. Uh, you pointed out in your introduction that it's been years in the making. I think yeah. I did a ride-along with my ambulance in St. Albert in 2014 or 15. So that is six years ago, probably, that this has been... I've been trying to highlight this issue. Um, and, you know, until it hits your own family, you don't know yeah. how, how important it is. And I can actually share a story with you. Earlier this summer, a member of my family had a suspected stroke. You call 911 and their first question to you is fire, police, or ambulance. When you say ambulance, they click you away from your municipality's dispatch and send you over to Alberta Health Services. Now, all of a sudden, I'm in a talking to someone who knows nothing about St. Albert, not, not where my parents live and um, how close we are to the fire hall, which has fully trained paramedics. Also, it, it, I needed a, they said a car with a single person um, paramedic from Edmonton. So that was a, I don't know, 20 minute wait in St. Albert. And then when they realized very immediately that she needed an ambulance, that ambulance had to come from Fort Saskatchewan. How so, long did that take? No, no. Well, I think overall, from the time I called nine one one till the time they arrived, it was about forty five minutes. In a stroke situation. Yes, yes. It was very frustrating, especially given my position and knowledge of the of the situation. So, yes, it's a problem. And that story, Kathy, is not unique by any means. Unfortunately, Absolutely. we hear those no. stories all the time. 
Exactly. And, you know, in, in at the fire hall, which is honestly a block and a half away from where I was calling 911, there is fire trucks in St. Albert that have fully trained paramedics and full advanced life support. And the dispatch have knowledge of not just fire, but also medical needs. So they could have they could have been much more helpful. I would have had a response within two or three minutes. Okay. Now, Kathy, the situation, yeah. and I'm having a hard time trying to understand because is it, there's not enough ambulances available on the road. We don't have the trucks to handle all the calls or is it the way that we're utilizing the services that we do have? What, where's the breakdown? I think, honestly, it's, it's multi-factor. So when I did my ride along uh, six ish years ago, and by the way, I'm doing another one tomorrow. I'm going to try to tweet out live how it goes. Okay. So, yeah, if you want to follow, it'll be interesting. I will. But yeah, six years ago, I remember sitting at um, the University of Alberta Hospital, a St. Albert truck sitting at the University of Alberta Hospital, but they can't release the patient until they're admitted to the hospital. So the paramedics have to sit with them. And so they're, they're off the road and not providing service. So I think that is one thing that needs to change. But I do believe there's um, a lack of... Uh, people entering the profession. I actually got some stats from Alberta municipalities that said um, on November 24th, there were 250 unfilled paramedic shifts in Alberta. So there's there's a lack of staff, and, and it's costing Albertans uh, time and, and money when we're paying overtime. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. I think you're right. There's a lot more than, you know, oh, this is the thing that we need to fix. There's probably many things that need to be fixed. Um, I wanted your reaction to um, the ombudsman saying, not in her purview. She can't She can't get involved in this. Um, she can't deal with AHS. Uh, were you surprised by that? Does that change your course of action on this at all? Uh, I guess it's not surprising, and I, I completely understand um, the authority that Marianne has uh, I think this needs to be addressed by um, the ministry and not AHS. I think the ministry has to step in and, and fix the problem. Um, and the other resolution, as you said, uh, one was to uh, deal with the dispatch. The other one is, can we come up with a plan? <laughs> Which seems to make really good sense to me, Kathy, is are, are, have we not been working on a plan? Because like you say, and I would wager it goes back more than six years, to be completely honest with yeah. you, that we've talked about this. Um, how does it continue to happen? 2009, when dispatch moved away from the municipalities. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I, I remember doing stories about um, paramedics and EMTs sitting, waiting in ERs to transfer their patient to hospital, going back more than that. You know, that's been a problem that's gone on for a long time. I know they've taken some steps, but obviously the problem isn't alleviated. So when we talk about a plan, you know, do you think maybe finally you can urge the people in charge to, to, to get to work on that? I hope so. I think with the, with the, the amount of intention it's getting... Um, the, you know, the fact that, that Alberta municipalities had those three motions and then the rural municipalities of Alberta had their convention the very following week and they had a very similar motion. So there is some pressure. Um, I think people need to share their stories a little bit more frequently. I need to hear from the, the frontline staff. But I'm, I'm hoping, I mean, I would love to see the municipalities get more involved in, and take it over like we, like we used to because I don't, think there was a bunch of a problem when we were running it ourselves. We're willing to work with the province to fix this. Um, hey, well, I've got you, Kathy. Another story that came out yesterday, and I know you were commenting on it as well. Changes to photo radar. A lot of your municipalities in your association use photo radar to the tune of tens of millions of dollars of revenue every year. Uh, just your reaction to the province bringing in new rules about where you can and can't use photo radar in the province of Alberta. Sure. Uh, 
so the, we're at the city of St. Albert still examining um, how that's going to affect us. My biggest concern was um, not being able to use the tool. And I do see it as a tool to um, increase safety in the community. There's lots of evidence that says it works. Um, and, you know, I always say to people, I could solve the, your, your problem of your dislike of photo radar, and the solution is drive the speed limit. Exactly. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, this, you know, I, I hate the, the hate the word cash cow, and I hate the fact that we're talking about all the revenue. Well, the revenue is coming from people that are breaking the law. Yeah. But, um, the changes, I mean, I'm glad they're allowing us to keep the tool. We're going to have to examine how how the tightened restrictions are going to affect municipalities such as St. Albert. It's the, you're not allowed to have um, auto enforcement in on roads less than 50 kilometers an hour. So a lot of municipalities across the province, Calgary, Edmonton, St. Albert, um, Beaumont, there's tons have 40-kilometer-hour yep. speed limits in the residential areas. So that's where the kids are walking to school, um, and not just in the school zone. It take, they have to walk much, much further than just the school zone to get to school. Um, that's where people are parking their cars on the street or walking their dogs. That's where you want to make sure there's no speeders. And now all of a sudden, I'd, I've been a tool to um, enforce uh, speeding has been taken away. So that's going to um, probably affect um, safety, and I think... You know, I think we're also required to quarterly report on on our on our data, which we didn't have to do before. So I think that's actually introducing some red tape back onto the municipalities when when the push from the government is supposed to be eliminate red tape. So it's kind of ironic, but we're still examining it. Okay, fair enough, yeah. and and we'll yeah. wait and see what comes of it. Um, thanks so much for your time, Kathy. Appreciate you joining us. No, no problem. That's Kathy Hearn, who is not only mayor of St. Albert, she is now also the president of Alberta Municipalities, which, if you're wondering, used to be AUMA, the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association. They changed their name, I think, like a month ago. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We're going to talk about vaccine equity because uh, if if anything, Omicron shows us that uh, until everybody gets through this. Nobody gets through this. We're going to chat now with Dr. Uh, Maxwell Smith, an Associate Director of Western's Health Ethics Law and Policy Lab. Dr. Smith, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us this morning. Happy to join. Good morning. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of people out there who are saying, yeah, kind of told you so, basically, in terms of, you know, it, until we get vaccination rates that are equitable around the globe, we can expect to see these kinds of variants, right? Yeah, it's, it's completely predictable, right? The, the more transmission of this virus that uh, we allow to happen, the more cases that we allow to happen, uh, the more chance there is for new variants to emerge. And that doesn't necessarily mean that any new variant will pose problems, right. be more transmissible or have severe outcomes or, or uh, evade our vaccinations, but that's a possibility. And so this was absolutely predictable. Yeah, and and there'll be more. I mean, if you take a look at where we are in terms of vaccination rates around the world, we sit here in North America. I mean, even the United States at 60% far outpaces 
pretty much every country in the Southern Hemisphere, right? The Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere are almost night and day. Yeah, I mean, uh, the staggering thing is that if you look at the whole continent of Africa, just 10% of African populations have received one dose of the vaccine. Yeah. So 90% of African populations haven't received any vaccination. And some have predicted that this could be all the way through 2022, 2023, perhaps even 2024 until we get uh, all populations in the world fully vaccinated. So we really need to commit ourselves to getting vaccines, particularly first and second doses, uh, into those places where people are naive to this virus in order to prevent these sorts of things from cropping up again in the future. You know, in the Western countries or the Northern Hemisphere countries, the richer countries around the world, they've talked about this right from the beginning. They have said we need to have this. There's several programs in place. Are we just not following through on what we said we would do? Why is it lagging so far behind? I think it has to do with urgency. Um, If you think about Canada, when we were initially rolling out our vaccinations, it was palpable how urgent we felt it was to get vaccines in arms. People were decrying how slow it was, how slow we were getting vaccines into the country. Think about South Africa, where Omicron was uh, first identified by the brilliant South African scientists and surveillance groups in that country. They didn't start their vaccination until May. And so that was six months after Canada started its vaccination. I couldn't imagine what it would have looked like in Canada, Canada, the pandemonium if we hadn't put our first dose into someone's arm by May. So I think that urgency that we felt in Canada to get this underway, get this rolling, we need to think about global vaccine equity with the same type of urgency. I think that's the real missing piece here. This may be exactly what we need, right? I mean, now there's all of a sudden a new focus on vaccine equity and talking about making sure that we uh, serve these other parts of the world um, because of Omicron. So maybe this is sort of the eye-opener that, unfortunately, was inevitable but necessary. It's an interesting point. So for the past 10 or so years, I've done some research where we look at infectious disease outbreaks like SARS-1 in 2002, 2003, uh, the the threat of bird flu, H1N1, Ebola, Zika, and even the uh, original outbreak of COVID-19. People often say that these are wake-up calls and that we'll get our act into gear because of what we're seeing. And to date, uh, you know, we have made some progress uh, toward equity and, and responding to these infectious diseases, but it's not sufficient. And so I like to be optimistic that Omicron might actually kick us into gear and take this seriously. But, you know, our, our history with this doesn't really give me much optimism. How, how, how do we even go about it? I know the United States says they've donated over a billion vaccines. They haven't all been delivered yet. Um, how much of a push would it take? Because we, we're at over 7 billion doses delivered around the world so far. Um, could we shorten that time frame if other countries got on board? I, I think so. And, you know, it will take a lot more than just giving vaccinations or, or vaccines to other countries. Part of the problem is that uh, some countries, of course, don't have great or, or strong healthcare infrastructure systems where they can deliver vaccines. Also, they're relying on donations of these vaccines uh, into the countries. If they have the ability to manufacture and produce the vaccines, if we're able to share the technologies that are required to do this, if we're able to uh, remove patents and intellectual property for these vaccines, yeah. that will just make the whole global effort that much quicker. So it's great that we're ensuring that there's more distribution of vaccines, 
We need to make sure that the infrastructure is there to actually uh, produce and deliver and distribute those vaccines. Also, the healthcare personnel who would be giving the vaccine. So this really will require a robust effort if we want to be successful here. Yeah, exactly. It's going to take all hands on deck. Um, Doctor, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us this morning. Anytime. Thank you. That is Dr. Maxwell Smith, who is Associate Director of Western's Health Ethics Law and Policy Lab. And there are a number of scientists out there who are saying... Not told you so. They're not gloating, obviously, and they're not gleeful about this, but they're saying, well, yeah, of course this happened. This is what we told you would happen, and it will continue to happen as long as we have such, you know, disproportional vaccination rates around the world. We were talking earlier about the new testing requirements for travelers coming into Canada. Um, interesting story that came out recently in terms of uh, just how common fraudulent COVID tests and vax records have become at Canadian borders. And uh, you'd be surprised. It's happening quite often. Now, remember, not all of them are asked to actually produce it. Not all of them would be caught. So you would have to assume the number would be even higher than what we're seeing. But um it's raising some concern for some people, obviously, because that's supposed to be the safeguard, right? That's supposed to be the system that's in place to make sure that we are doing the kind of testing that we need to be doing. But if you take a look at it, as of um, late uh, last month, or early last month, rather, late October, uh, 374 fake COVID-19 test results had shown up. 168 airports, 187 at land crossings. So, um, you know, not everybody's got them, but some people do. And it shouldn't really be all that surprising to us, I guess. We're going to chat now with Shabnam Preet Kaur, who's a forensic document examiner with Toronto-based DocuFraud Canada. Uh, Shabnam, thanks so much for joining us this morning. appreciate your time. Yeah, you're welcome. These numbers that we're seeing, you know, 150-ish, 300, something like that, um, people presenting what we believe are fraudulent documents like this, does that number surprise you? We're expecting to see uh, something this common? Well, it was quite expected because the PDF documents that are being used as a vaccine certificate are very easy to be manipulated. So it's, it's not something that wasn't expected. So, yes, it's not that surprising. Okay, so if we're seeing 374 that we've identified roughly, um, what does that tell us about how many there really are out there? Because obviously they're not catching all of them, right? And yes, that's true. Like... Uh, with an ease of access to internet and image processing softwares, it has led to occurrence of frequent instances of alterations of digital documents. So due to you know, general perception that digital manipulation is less susceptible to detection. So this encourages people with malicious intent to employ easily available softwares to serve their purpose of forging a digital document, and in this case, the PDA vaccine certificate, to suit their needs. So they are applying various uh, image processing softwares to change their name, date the vaccine was taken, and the name of the vaccine that was administered. So all those, everything that you want to change in that document is changed by people who want to do all kind of manipulations. And it's not hard, right? I mean, there's, it, it's not high-level expert software. It's stuff that people are using every single day anyway to go ahead and manipulate these test results. No, it's not hard at all. Like I said, that the softwares are uh, uh, available online for yeah. free, and you can just download them, and it takes actually less than five minutes to ch- make all the changes that you need in the document. And you know what? I mean, I, I just got back from the States, and the list of places we could have gone and got tested 
is endless. I mean, really, there's there's hospitals, there's pharmacies, there's testing services, and they all have their own form of documentation. So I can only imagine if you're somebody working at an airport, you are supposed to see all of these different documents coming from all over the world, really. How would you even know where to start suspecting that something might be fraudulent? Uh, well, the detection of uh, these kind of alterations uh, have become more challenging. So, however, some of the features that can be observed in fraudulent documents can be, for example, changes in the overall alignment and arrangement of words and letters in the PDF vaccination certificate. Also, one can look for uh, irregular size or spacing between letters and word in case there is some kind of editing present in the document. Uh, Then uh, changes or discrepancies in the font and design of inserted words uh, and numerals or letters can be seen. Yeah. Uh, Further, uh, sometimes there is crowding uh, cast at places in between letters and words that can raise suspicion about the uh, vaccine certificate to be a fake one. What about completely producing an entirely original document on your own? I mean, that's another thing. And then, then there would be none of the discrepancies visible. Exactly. You cannot make out if that document is a fake one or if it's an original one. Exactly, yeah. So how do we do What's a better way? What's a way to try and cut down on this? Uh, Well, I think uh, if we are still continuing using the PDF vaccination certificates, uh, then there should be more security features or some kind of watermark should be added in those certificates. Apart from that, insertion of colored background can solve this problem to some extent. Okay. Uh, Then I I think... uh, I would actually suggest that secure QR code vaccination certificate is a simple solution to prevent forgery or tampering a vaccination certificate. Yeah, the QR code just makes it simple. I mean, those yeah. are really hard to come up with something fake because it's got to yes. be tied back to something. Yes, because, you know, the secure, uh, the secure QR code certificates generation system helps to address this problem by making sure that all vaccination certificates are generated centrally by the issuing authority and the information of them on them is captured in the form of a secure QR code before it gets printed either physically or electronically. Shabnam, thank you so much for your information and uh, we appreciate you joining us today. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. That is Shabnam who is a forensic document examiner with Toronto-based DocuFraud Canada. Yeah, and I think, you know, like she said, the QR code um, is probably the most secure way of... Because it, it ties back to something. And I, I, I feel for the people uh, working in the airports because... I mean, I went to the casino this weekend and the lady in line in front of us wasn't vaccinated, but she had some exemption form. I don't know where it came from. I don't know what it was, and neither did the kid working at the door, right? We were just waiting to scan our vaccine records, but she's got, you know, three papers with her or whatever. He, he let her, and I, I think, what's he going to do? He's going he's gonna to challenge her? No, he's not. So it's like we've talked about with testing and all the rest of it. We're working our way through this, and uh, it's not perfect by any means, and there will be people out there trying to take advantage of it. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.